again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the show. My name is Jeff Kwame. I'm your host and the executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. This episode comes to you thanks to the generosity of Cafe Real, a provider of sustainably grown coffee sourced directly from family farms in Medellin, Colombia, and roasted on site in Bristol, Connecticut. I encourage all of you who love coffee to try their products. You can go to caferial.co and use code JeffQ10 to let them know that you heard about it here. On behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. Even with the ongoing pandemic and the typical partisan politics dominating the news cycle for 2021, the field of behavioral health, most notably those of substance use disorders, remain on the minds of those working on a federal level. Be it a changing of the guard of federal agencies, a change in focus of policy, or legislative activity and funding, much has taken place that significantly affects our industry. It can be difficult to keep up with all that has occurred as we manage our daily lives. So our focus today is really to create a snapshot of the past year, a sort of abridged version of the federal activity impacting the SUD prevention, treatment, and recovery industry. Joining us today for his second appearance on the program is Andrew Kessler, principal of Slingshot Solutions, a Washington, D.C.-based consulting firm that focuses on behavioral health policy. Andrew received his undergraduate degree in political science from Washington University in St. Louis and earned his Juris Doctorate from the American University in Washington, D.C. He has written legislation and report language published by both the House and Senate and has presented orally before such bodies as the Scientific Management Review Board, the College of Problems uh, of Drug Dependence, and the National Conference of Addictive Disorders. He is a frequent contributor to Politico, The Hill, and Alcohol and Drug Abuse Weekly. He has represented the CCB in Washington for several years. Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Good to see you again. Thank you, Jeff. Always fun to talk. Before we get anything that's really policy or legislation specific, uh, let's talk about some of the leadership changes made by the Biden administration. Certainly in Connecticut, it's of great interest to the folks that are listening to us here. But but let's talk about what's happened at, at Samson ONDCP. The uh, Biden administration gave us an opportunity uh, to go through an exercise we go through every four or eight years here in Washington, uh, the transition, you know, which is kind of like a uh, an Olympics for uh, for for policy uh, for for policy professionals, and we were all um, really uh, waiting with great anticipation for who he would appoint to uh, these leadership positions. At SAMHSA, we have. Great news for Connecticut. We have uh, Dr. Miriam Delphin Rittman, uh, who uh, spent many years in Connecticut and uh, and has um, you know um, quite a uh, an excellent professional reputation there. And um, in her time at SAMHSA already, in in just a few short months, the most important thing that she's done is um, is be accessible. Really, that's that's the most we can um, hope for in the early days of of new leadership. I work with several different coalitions here in Washington D.C. We all work in coalitions, and whether it be um, the Mental Health Liaison Group, the Addiction Leadership Group, the uh, Coalition for Health Funding, you name it. Uh, Dr. Delphin Rittman has made herself available to all of these coalitions for conversations to talk about 
um, her priorities. And in addition to Dr. Delphin Rittman, there's another New Englander um, in a leadership position at SAMHSA, and that's Tom Coderre. Uh, of Rhode Island. Uh, and Tom has been long been a fixture in SUD policy. Uh, he was acting director at SAMHSA before Dr. Delphine Rittman was confirmed. He remains there as a deputy, and um, he has been um, right at Dr. Delphine Rittman's side um, just to really uh, get a finger on the pulse of what our priorities are as advocates and uh, and as providers. So um, that's a, you know, we're, we're off to a good start and a refreshing change of pace uh, from the uh, from the previous administration. Uh, that's uh, at, at SAMHSA. Uh, at the White House itself, we have the Office of National Drug Control Policy. And the person selected to head this department, or this office, I should say, is Dr. Raul Gupta of West Virginia. And it's, it's significant for a few reasons. Uh, the First of which is, this is a position that for many years was referred to as the drug czar. And uh, for almost since its inception, up until the Obama administration, the person who held this position was always, a, uh, for lack of a better word, an authority figure. Uh, we have had generals, we have had federal judges, we have had chiefs of police. It was always someone who uh, had an air of uh, either enforcement or law and order. Uh, now, with Dr. Gupta, we have the first medical doctor to, to take this position, which signals, um, I don't want to say a shift because we don't know what the future holds, but it is a significant uh, leap forward in the sense that now we have an administration that says, let's take a... Um, a public health approach almost, you know, from the top down, from the leadership down, we are going to address uh, ONDCP's priorities from a public health perspective. So um, Dr. Gupta comes from uh, West Virginia and uh, where obviously it, it's it's uh, the, the issues concerning um, opioid addiction, uh, overdoses uh, is really uh, quite a, a problem uh, almost worse than anywhere else in the country. And um, New England and Appalachia have that in common, actually. Uh, I know that um, in conversations with you, Jeff, you both said that opioids have always been uh, kind of a, a, a drug of choice in the New England area, in the New England region. And uh, starting with the, uh, the pill mills in the, uh, in the 90s, Appalachia started really to... Um, Unfortunately, keep pace with New England with um, with with uh, opioid abuse. So um, he's really familiar with the uh, with the situation. He was public health commissioner in West Virginia, and uh, so now the leadership is set. We spent the first several months of the Biden administration wondering who would be in these positions. Um, I have to be honest. We all from the start knew Dr. Gupta was a possibility at ONDCV. But at SAMHSA, the appointment of Dr. Delphin Rittman uh, surprised us a little bit. We just didn't, you know, um, her uh, her name hadn't come up in a lot of conversations in uh, in the D.C. hallways or these days uh, on Zoom. <laughs> We're not in hallways anymore <laughs> in D.C. But uh, yeah, it was a bit of a it was a, a bit of a surprise, but a pleasant one because um, uh, from the uh, from the start. She's uh, she's jumped in with both feet and um, is just really anxious to uh, 
put the Biden administration stamp on the agency. It was a double-edged sword um, with Dr. Delphine Ritman going to D.C. because we she did such a great job here. It's losing her, but it was nice to have her um, you know, going to Sam's to lead that. It was it was kind of a pat on the back. I think we, we felt for all of us. And um, but she does have a history it's at SAMHSA in the past. So it, it just seems like a, a good appointment. Um, talking about funding, this is something that's really, really misunderstood kind of by the public and, and by many of us in the field. The appropriation process, especially in as simple a way as possible. Can you talk about where the money that is appropriated to us in our, our end of the world in the field, where does that come from? Right. There's two types of spending when it comes to the federal government. There's mandatory and discretionary. Mandatory are programs such as uh, Medicare and Medicaid, Social Security, veterans benefits, um, interest on the, on the debt things like that. That comes directly from the Treasury. Everything else is discretionary. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Department of Transportation, Department of Defense, Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Labor, that's discretionary. And if funding is discretionary, it must be approved by Congress and the president in the form of legislation. It's uh, um, at its in its simplest terms. The House uh, the Senate and the president all have to agree on spending levels. Uh, from there, it gets more complex. Uh, the uh, simplest way to put it is the president recommends a budget to Congress. Uh, this is exactly what I said it is. It's a recommendation. And when the president recommends a budget to Congress, it's not so much a, uh, a document that is valuable for its numbers, but is valuable for the White House to signal what its priorities are. Um, a senator uh, in the 80s once said, don't tell me your priorities, show me your budget, I'll tell you your priorities. Uh, that was a young senator from the state of Delaware <laughs> by the name of Joe Biden. <laughs> so when uh, President Biden put out his first um, uh, budget recommendation for the upcoming fiscal year, uh, we were really anxious to see if he prioritized um, SUD services. And he did. And we'll probably get to that a little later in the podcast. From there, the House of Representatives has to produce their appropriations bills, 12, and the Senate has to produce theirs. There are 12 different appropriations bills, as I mentioned before. There's Health and Human Services, which is combined with labor. There's transportation, which is usually combined with um, and urban development. There's defense. There's, um, you know, and all down the line. Uh, so there's 12 different appropriate appropriation subcommittees in each chamber. Um, then when the House and Senate can meet to agree on what their final number is, they send it off to the president for a signature. If that does not happen, and you ask me to keep it simple, that either happens or it doesn't. <laughs> and if it does not happen, you have two options. You issue a continuing resolution, which keeps the government funded at current levels without the increases of, of any kind, or the government shuts down, as we've seen a few times in recent years. Yep. We have one under the Trump administration. We have one under the Obama administration. I believe we had one under the uh, Clinton administration. 
I don't remember if we had one under George W. Bush, but it happens. Yeah. So it's, it seems fairly common. I think it's you know, shut down. Is <laughs> more not common than it should be. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the job of Congress is to get all this done by September 30th. And if they don't, then continuing resolutions need to be passed. Uh, it's rare these days they get their work done by September 30th. When we look at the budget that was presented and, and the substance abuse block grant nearly doubled uh, under the current budget. Can you talk about what is covered, some of the services that are covered by the block grant? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the Substance Abuse Prevention and Treatment Block Grant is a program of SAMHSA. So um, this is money that goes out to the states based on a formula on population. Uh, California gets the most, Wyoming gets the least, everyone else falls in between. Um, and uh, Every It used to be every year. Now I think it's every two years. A state will apply to SAMHSA for its block grant funding, um, which is, for the most part, a formality. And what happens is a state will receive funding based on its population, and at least 20% of that must go to prevention services. Uh, I say at least because if a state wants to spend more, they can. So, uh, But usually uh, the remainder... Remaining 80% goes to other services, mostly treatment and some recovery. So um, what does this cover? That's that's a little more, it's a little trickier. Um, at base, it's the cornerstone of a state mm -hmm. substance use disorder prevention, treatment, and recovery systems. So um, the... It, it, it can do several things. It can assist states with it assists states with plannings, uh, how they're going to formulate their spending strategies. It can promote reliable support for providers, state alcohol and drug agencies, uh, support providers of prevention and treatment and recovery programs, and um, these providers rely on block grant funds to um, to provide the services they provide. It maximizes efficiency by leveraging infrastructure. Um, states and providers are, are um, you know, uh, always trying to uh, produce the necessary data and reporting requirements to make sure that they're complying with the state and we're maximizing our effort with the block grant. And it allows the state's flexibility to address local needs with, with substance use disorders. Um, so um, whatever a state's priorities are, uh, they decide, you know, how, how, how the block grant is, is spent. Um, now, what direct clinical services is it spent on? Uh, it can run the gamut. It could be for... Um, neonatal services for mothers uh, in, in need of uh, uh, SUD services who are, uh, who, who are pregnant. It can be smoking cessation. It's, uh, it's, it really runs the gamut. Um, and it, um, for the most part, if something's not covered by Medicaid, um, that's where the block grant steps yeah. in. Uh, and um, it, Connecticut, I believe, receives about I think uh, last year, Connecticut received about $45 million in block grant funding. Uh, so um, if we can, you know, increase it, you know, it's not going to double, but if we can increase it by maybe 50%, um, we're talking about a pretty significant increase. I'm actually working on a project with the single state agency in Yale Medical 
that is paid for out of discretionary funds from the single state agency that come from the block grant. So uh, there you go. <laughs> one thing that's new to talk about uh, with the block grant is the recovery set aside. And I think that's really, really important because it tells us it's also a vision of where we're going as an industry um, to be recovery focused. What is the recovery set aside is exactly? I know it's it's geared at $10 million or uh, at this point, but it's 10% of the, go ahead, you can explain it better than I can. <laughs> right. Well, well, for years, if you were to look at the amount of money that goes to SAMHSA overall and the amount of money spent on recovery support services, it's staggering how little it is. Uh, SAMHSA is approximately an $8 billion agency. And of that $8 billion, um, the amount spent on recovery support services, or I shouldn't say this is a hard and fast number, but the amount dedicated, 100% dedicated to recovery support services uh, doesn't even touch 30 million. And um, that's not enough. As your listeners know, recovery support services are critical to maintaining um, population health. And we have been for a long time trying to get the states to say, why don't you dedicate more of your funding to recovery support? Uh, we just haven't been successful. So it was time to go to the federal government. So what we needed to do to make this happen was Congress actually had to write into its legislation, its appropriations legislation, that 10% of a state's block grant dollars will be spent on recovery support services. Now, that's a pretty broad array of services. Uh, so the states are obviously going to need, and SAMHSA, are going to need some guidance. And um, where we stand now is that the House and Senate have both put in their legislation and their reports, and I'll explain in a minute what that means, that the 10% set aside be put into effect. Um, legislation is pretty boring to read, obviously, and sometimes difficult to read. But if you were to look at the state, if you were looking at the House and Senate legislation, both say when they appropriate their amounts, 2.8 billion on the House side, 3 billion on the Senate side, 10% should be spent on recovery support services. The legislation doesn't specify what that means. Whenever there's an appropriations bill, there's almost always a committee report that accompanies it. And that colors in the lines. Imagine a coloring book. The legislation is the lines. The report is the coloring in. And that's where we get into the details of what is to be funded with these set-aside dollars. Mm -hmm. And they listed five priority areas. Develop local recovery community support institutions. Provide peer-based recovery coaching. Provide uh, uh, ancillary community-based supports necessary to sustain recovery provide activities to reduce stigma, and provide technical assistance to organizations principally governed by people in recovery. So um, these are the five pillars or the five principles that they'd like to see the money spent on. Um, there is one caveat that we've got to be really clear about. Um, this is only good for the upcoming fiscal year, assuming it passed because it hasn't passed yet. Um, in order to make it um, last in perpetuity, different legislation, different authorizing legislation will be required. It's not something we're going to get into today because it's far too complex. 
But um, the appropriators listened to the recovery community and said, okay, we'll try it for one year. You've got your 10% set aside, and these are the activities we'd like to see the money spent on. So take Connecticut, for example. If if there are no more changes to the language of the appropriations bills, which there still could be, but if there are no further changes, and we see about a 50% increase, and Connecticut ends up with about $70 million in block grant funds. That means $7 million must be spent in Connecticut uh, on the uh, recovery support services sector. You know, that makes perfect sense, too, because the project that we're working on, that collaborative project, is a peer support project. And we initially had created uh, the RFP for three years, and we were funded for one year and so the yeah, next two will come there are lesser amount but it's 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 really it's possibly dependent on the block grant and i just want to say you said the magic word when it comes to at least getting congress to listen and that's peer for some reason uh, i can't quite put my finger on it but when you talk to congress about workforce these days about sud workforce their first question is always tell me about peers yeah. uh, i don't know when it happened i don't know how it happened but it happened. So uh, when we were, however, explaining to Congress what a peer does and what recovery is, um, takes a lot. Uh, I've had many conversations with many appropriators explaining to them, recovery is not treatment. Uh, It's a completely different sphere. Uh, Treatment leads to recovery and there needs to be better communication between uh, those sectors, we'd all love to see a more fluid system, but um, it's kind of part of the natural evolution of working with policymakers. 15 years ago, we were just lucky if we could get into their office and explain, this is the disease of addiction and what it does. And then, uh, you know, about seven years ago, we were at, okay, you see the need for funding and we got that, uh, a boost in funding um, because of the opioid epidemic. Now we're on to recovery and peers. So it's just a natural evolution of educating them more and more and more about the different areas of, um, of, of our, our space, which is no different than many other fields of medicine, especially emerging fields. Yeah. And the seven years ago, it was doctor based. Now it's, it starts with peer, which is a much better thing from from my perspective for many reasons. Obviously, the effectiveness and, and what peers are able to do, um, and it really is, uh, you know, the economy of scale. What peers can provide, you get more bang for the buck than treatment dollars. Um, I, I All I don't want to see treatment dollars go anywhere. You know, in response to the, the ongoing overdose crisis, um, what's happening with the SOR, the State Opioid Response Grant? Right. The state opioid response grant is also doing well in the appropriations process. Um, but like everything else, we're not over the finish line yet. The state opioid response grant is a really interesting <laughs> case study in, uh, in 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 SUD policy, and um, it's it, it's been it's been fun to watch it evolve. It, it started as a five hundred million dollar a year program uh, and very similar to the block grant in the sense that it went out to the states on a population basis and that was it. And interestingly enough, when it was born in 2016, it was mandatory funding. Remember, we kicked off talking about 
appropriations. And I yep. said, there's two kinds of funding, mandatory and discretionary. So it was mandatory funding for its first two years, which meant as advocates, we didn't have to worry about it. It was coming out of the treasury and going to the states. And that was that. Uh, it, but now after that uh, two year uh, period expired, um, it's become discretionary. Uh, and surprisingly enough, even though it's become discretionary, uh, it's steadily increased. Uh, the overdose pandemic we're facing plays a large role in that. Politics and more policymakers seeing this as an issue to take home to their constituency plays an issue uh, plays a role in that. But long story short, up to last year, we were up to $1.5 billion. And um, again, I want to just mention the evolution. Not only did it go from $500 million originally to a billion to $1.5 billion, but it underwent some other changes as well. Originally, it only went out based on population. After its first two years, it changed its formula slightly. And the 10 states with the worst overdose rates um, received a little extra. I cut I call it the cherry on top. It may not be glamorous, but that's what it is. Uh, the, the 10 states with the worst overdose numbers got a little added boost of funding. Um, and this was at the behest of many states in New England. The uh, senators from New Hampshire, um, Senators uh, Shaheen and Hassan, uh, who played a role in creating the program, especially Senator Shaheen, um, they said, wait a minute, we're a small state and we're getting very little money, but we have one of the highest overdose rates. Um, and you can look at this one of two ways. You can look at it at rate and say, yes, you do have one of the highest rates. Or you can look at it and say, yeah, you may have one of the highest rates, but take a state like California. And even though their rate is lower, their gross numbers are still ridiculously higher and yeah. more those of New Hampshire, so shouldn't they be entitled to more resources? It's a very interesting push-pull, and that's what politics is. Uh, so, um, and then there was a change that um, um, it was written as a state opioid. The O is opioid, but yep. strangely enough, we're now no longer limited to opioids. Um, the uh, SOR funds can be used for, for the most part, um, all SUD services. So the um, SOR is really <laughs> no longer, the, yeah. the O has been taken out of, of, maybe we can change the O to overdose and keep the SOR initials. Maybe it should be a, because uh, the overdose numbers dictate the amounts and uh, it's not just used for opioids anymore. So maybe we can <laughs> introduce legislation to start calling it the state <laughs> overdose response grant. But that's all a long way of saying this year it's received another significant increase. We're going to see an increase from uh, $1.5 billion nationwide to $2 billion nationwide. Uh, that may not sound like a lot of money at a gross level, but at a uh, percentage level, that's a 33% increase. Uh, and going from $1.5 billion to $2 billion um, is a good sign. I and you and others who work on this, we know it's still not enough. Um, it's it's really, you know, one and a half billion um, to the states in addition to the block grant dollars. If you add the state opioid response to the block grant, and the reason I 
merge those two together is because they're both administered by single state agencies. Um, the we we come up with what if if we go from 1.5 to 2 billion and the and the block grant goes from 1.8 to 3 billion. We're still only talking about $5 billion nationwide to address a problem that's killing over 100,000 Americans a year. Uh, really not a proportional response. Right. So we uh, we do this often in Washington. We celebrate our wins and at the same time say, uh, we're still not done fighting. <laughs> Think of it as a boxing uh uh, a boxing match and uh, you need to win the round and you win the round and you're like, great, I won the round, but the bell's going to ring again and you got to get out there for the next round. <laughs> so um, that, that's the, where we're at. It's the Bill Belichick approach. We're on to the next one. <laughs> this one's over. If we're you, on to the next. If you say so. <laughs> it's a long season. Yeah. Um, I was recently speaking to a CEO of an, uh, of an organization here in Connecticut. He has, they have several OTPs throughout the state. And he was expressing his appreciation for the extension on the methadone take homes, how much that has helped the folks that they serve. It's actually helped the staff during the pandemic. So it's just been a great uh, thing for the, for everything involved in that and uh, for his organization. What are some of the other, can you explain what's happening with that? And then what some of the other uh, medication assisted treatment uh, uh, changes are happening? Yeah, absolutely. The first things first on the um, methadone take home during the pandemic, the there was a, a great effort across the entire healthcare spectrum to try and accommodate people who wanted to isolate, and a, a, as we should have. And uh, we all know the the rules surrounding methadone that you have to come down to the OTP and and receive your dosage um, it, it is we know that that that's kind of antiquated. Uh, so a rule change was made for the duration of the emergency that uh, people could uh, take home a 14 day and in some cases 28 day supply of methadone. Um, this went into effect and the change was expiring. So uh, because we're still a little weary of, um, of COVID and will probably remain so for the near future, SAMHSA extended this rule for another year. So now uh, th this extension was done, I believe, in November. So now we have another year of people being allowed to um, take home methadone. And we've also seen an expansion of mobile methadone clinics. Um, if you are an OTP and you have the means, you can load up your van, go see uh, the consumers you need to see and uh, and administer their dosages. So uh, we've heard nothing but success uh, mm. coming, coming from this program. Uh, so much to the point that we anticipate legislation being introduced in the near future in Congress to make this change permanent. Um, the legislation hasn't been uh, introduced just yet, but several offices have been very upfront that they want to see this change. One, speaking of your uh, neighbors uh, in New England, uh, Senator Markey of Massachusetts, who's always been um, a, a champion of our cause and has always um, been, been very well informed, especially on the matter of uh, medication-assisted treatment, he has made this one of his uh, one of his priorities. And um, several offices have said um, 
they they have a lot of support to uh, to make this change permanent. Some of the other changes that have been made are really on the telemedicine front. Obviously, um, we all. Uh, the, the everyone wanted to see what telemedicine uh, could could bring us during the pandemic, and uh, unfortunately, uh, there are a lot of restrictions. Well, I shouldn't say unfortunately because regulation in in many cases can be a good thing, but um, not everyone has the means to access telemedicine. Not everybody has the uh, knowledge base to access telemedicine. Um, what happened with telemedicine? was some restrictions were relaxed in the sense that um, with MAT, uh, the previous regulations were a doctor could not prescribe MAT over a telemedicine session unless they had at least one session in person with the patient. Uh, That has changed. Now you can prescribe over telemedicine without an in-person visit. Um, Other changes were made were... um, okay, uh, a telemedicine visit can be done over the phone if the person doesn't have a, uh, a computer. And perhaps most the most important was uh, before the pandemic, all telemedicine visits had to be on a HIPAA compliant platform. Now it's being allowed through uh, resources such as uh, Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever platform you prefer. Uh, the only restriction is still no social media, like a Facebook chat, Twitter chat, that's still not allowed, but um, uh, HIPAA compliant platforms are not required for the time being. And I want to say this was not a change. These um, these telemedicine changes were not changes that were made in statute, but rather um, the powers that be said they weren't going to audit the providers to assure that these compliances were being followed. They basically said, you do what you got to do to make sure you continue to see as many patients as possible. And we're not going to audit you. We're not going to say, show us your records that this was on a HIPAA compliant platform. Show us your records that you saw this person in, you know, this, this consumer in person first. Um, They're just not auditing. So it's kind of a see no evil, do no evil Mm -hmm. situation. Um, And it is by no means permanent. Uh, The day may come when we are have put this pandemic aside and the old rules go back into effect and we've just got to keep an eye out for that. So um, the, the, the powers that be just knew the easiest way to do it would just be to say, guys, do what you got to do rather than pass legislation, yeah. which as we all know <laughs> is not the, uh, is not exactly moving at light speed. So um, there've been, uh, most of the changes have come, uh, on the telemedicine side, and um, we're we're anxious to see how this continues post pandemic. Uh, how many people continue to take advantage of telemedicine? How many providers continue to take advantage of it? Um, uh, and of course, for our uh, our space, where providers are in shortage and um, professionals are, are are in shortage. Um, we'll see what uh, the future brings for telemedicine when it comes to crossing state lines, reciprocity, so on. Well, then you get into the Medicaid, you know, the Medicaid. Well, well yes, you do. And are, it, it gets much more confusing. Uh, much, much more. Yeah. But th- there's been a lot of talk. I, I don't yeah. want to, you know, I um, do a lot of work on the reciprocity issue and I understand it's, uh, it's benefits and it's pitfalls. 
Uh, but there's just been a lot of talk about, um, hey, why can't we get people the care they need as soon as they need it, which should have been our attitude <laughs> before the pandemic. But uh, I guess um, some people need uh, tragedy and trauma to uh, to open their eyes to um, changes that could uh, could benefit consumers. Yeah, I think that we have, have, as an industry have been able to take advantage uh, of the opportunity to meet our folks truly where they're at a little better than we have in the past. Um, the late Ohio Congressman Mike Oxley said something that you and I have talked about often. It says Congress does two things well. They overreact and they do nothing, which I find really amusing. At this point in time, when we look at legislation related to the ongoing opioid issues and the overdose crisis, is Congress doing either well right now? Are they doing nothing? Are they doing? Are they overreacting? Um, at the risk of offending my colleagues in Congress, uh, I would not say they're overreacting. Let's put it that way. Uh, the we have seen. 100,000 people die over the past year uh, as a result of overdose. And in many of those cases, uh, it comes as no surprise to anyone who follows this issue closely, uh, uh, fentanyl analogs play a large role. Um, there, there's no question about that. So we are dealing with two issues simultaneously. Um, the demand issue, people turning to um, the use of... Um, of substances, especially during the challenging times of the pandemic. As I said, when the pandemic began, we're, we're really in for some trouble in the SUD space. And uh, someone asked me why. And I said, even though I'm not a clinician, I know this issue well enough to know that uh, fear and isolation are not a good combination for the population that we serve, um, let alone the entire American populace. So uh, that's one, and the the fentanyl uh, uh, and the fentanyl analogs that are showing up in uh, in heroin and and cocaine and methamphetamine, um, it is um, contributing. Um, there is no question; it is uh, that is contributing to these to these numbers. Um, so, what we're not doing is treating it like the emergency it is. We're treating it like an important issue, but but for the pandemic, if I were to tell you there was something out there killing 100,000 Americans a year, people would want to know what we're doing about it. Um, and I can't help but think back to the national emergency declared by, or the public health emergency declared by President Trump. And what bothered me the most about that whole situation was usually when there's a public health emergency, the president sends to Congress a supplemental appropriations request, meaning I know this wasn't in my original budget, but we're in an emergency situation and I need you to appropriate these funds now so we can react properly to it. Um, the best comparison I can make is if you remember about eight years ago, we went through the Ebola scare and people were freaking out. Am I going to get the Ebola virus? Am I going to get contaminated? Even though the transmission of the Ebola virus is incredibly complex and far, far more difficult to contract than something like COVID. Um, 
there were single digit cases in the United States and even fewer cases of people who contracted it in the United States. I think a grand total of four Americans passed away as a result of an infection from Ebola. And President Obama sends a billion dollar proposal to Congress for epidemiology, uh, emergency room preparedness, on and on and on. Congress haggles because it was, you know, God forbid a Republican Congress and a Democratic president just say, wow, we've really got to do something and act. Uh, I think they gave uh, the White House, I think, $800 million. And we spent $800 million on a disease that has killed four Americans and really doesn't spread all that quickly. Um, and now here we are faced with addiction, which may not be contagious, um, killing 100,000 people a year. And what are we stuck with? We're stuck with the discretional appropriations that we spent the first half of this uh, podcast talking about. Yeah. yeah, there are increases to the block grant. There are increases to the SOR program, but it's clearly not enough. And it's clearly not being treated with the urgency it, it needs to be treated with. Um, and there's really only one answer. And I, I hate to say this because I hear it all the time. Um, I hear it from everybody and you get bored of hearing it. But it's true. And I'm going to say the dreaded S word, stigma. Uh, and I don't even like the S word. I don't like stigma because I had a friend I would work with very early on in my in my time with Slingshot Solutions said, it's not stigma, it's discrimination. It's not stigma. You know, they're, they're, HIV had a stigma. Um, but eventually this country rallied and said, you know, we better do something about this. Uh, we're way beyond that. We're way beyond stigma. Uh, the fact that we are not treating this with the urgency of any other public health emergency that kills 100,000 people a year is discrimination against people who suffer from this disorder. And I will say that without reservation. And uh, the single state agency director here in Connecticut prior to Dr. Delphine Ribbon used to say that all the time. Let's not talk about stigma. Let's talk about discrimination because that's what it is. Um, just before we finish up, is there anything you'd like to share with the listeners? Um, how can people that may be interested find information on Slingshot Solutions? Well, uh, of course. Uh, we have our website, www.slingshotsolutions.net. Uh, we are on Twitter at SlingshotDC. I have to warn you, that's my personal Twitter account as well as my business Twitter account. So um, if you're in Connecticut or anywhere else and you're a Red Sox fan, you may not like what you read <laughs> but beyond that we do try and keep a high percentage of our comments uh based in uh in behavioral health policy and um yeah we've been uh slingshot's been around for about 13 years now and uh we've been working on uh on behavioral health issues that uh that whole time uh in addition to the ccb we work with other states around the country on uh, on federal policy issues and uh, the only thing I'd like to add is that um, in this time of, you know, discord in politics, um, you still shouldn't get discouraged and sell short your ability to have 
even a little influence. Um, contacting your member of Congress can make a huge difference when it comes to some really, you know, um, some dotted I's and some cross T's. And don't sell that short. Uh, there is always potential to have an influence when you get a member of Congress who's interested in hearing what you have to say. I know for a, uh, uh, on this issue in particular, Senator Murphy has been quite good. He's always been an advocate for mental health and substance use disorder services. Um, the rest of your congressional delegation, obviously Rosa DeLauro has a great interest in this as chair of the um, Appropriations Committee. Yep. And um, your, your delegation is fairly strong on, on this issue. And if you watch the news, whether it be MSNBC, Fox, CNN, uh, whether you watch, uh, whether you get your news from the New York Times, the Hartford Current, the Washington Post, um, don't be fooled by the fact that what they cover and what we're talking about, they cover politics which is the discord, which is the arguments, which is the inability to come to an agreement or the rare occasion where we come to an agreement. That's big picture. What we're talking about here is policy. And there's still great opportunity to influence policy if you want to by getting in touch with your your congressional delegation. Um, 99% of what Congress does, you never read about in the news. Um, I, we have a friend of mine who I've been working with for many years has a saying, government works best when you don't notice it at all. Mm-hmm. No one drives to work and calls their congressman and says, hey, you know what? I didn't hit a single pothole. Thanks for those transportation funds that repaved Route 67. Yep. Uh, but it, but they did. <laughs> Congress, you know, government did that. Um, no one calls Congress and said, I just enjoyed my turkey sandwich Thanks for the food inspectors who made sure there was no listeria, but they did. And then there is no difference. You just, uh, Jeff, you just talked about uh, block grant funds that's funding a CCB program. And you're talking about recovery funds that are going to fund the great recovery system in Connecticut. Um, the people who are receiving those services may not know it, but yeah, the government is helping you. I know we're not supposed to believe anyone says they're from the government and they're here to help, but the government is helping you. And there's always a chance to influence that um, and, 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 and talk to your delegation and say, I've got another area where government can help and they will listen. You know, I, I 10 years ago or so, I saw this in action for the first time. My first trip uh, to Congress is we were leaving a meeting with uh, Congresswoman DeLauro's staff when the Democrats were in the minority in the House and she was the ranking member. And as we're coming out of the uh, office of the hallway, Hal Rogers' staff, who was, he was the, um, he's the chair of the committee, his staff are saying, hey, we want to talk to you about that as well. We've got to get together and do this. So you see bipartisanship and you see work being done when you look beyond the newspaper headlines. Exactly. Yeah. Um, just one one final question for me that that um, just came to me. Can you refresh my memory? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, who sang second at this year's Army Navy game? <laughs> Navy sang second okay. with an excellent defensive effort in the second half. The Navy defensive line in the second half uh, was uh, at another level. 
and uh, I was really impressed by uh, by that defense. Um, but uh, uh, hats off to both sides. And uh, they're the only two college programs left where we see not only true student athletes, but uh, the the finest America has to offer in terms of uh, our future leadership. And it's uh, um, so much fun to watch that game every year because uh, it is indescribable yep. how scholarship, achievement, athleticism, and pride all come together in that game. So yes, Navy sang second, but uh, that's a footnote to the uh, to the greater good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's you know as they say, it's the only game that for for three hours they're fighting against each other, but then after that they'll all die for us, and that's kind of uh, absolutely. That's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. So I'd like to thank our friend and colleague, Andrew Kessler of Slingshot Solutions, for returning to keep us informed on what's happening at the federal level. Um, just as a side note, when we do our conference in June, uh, Andrew will be there uh, as a presenter. And so thank you for taking the time with us, Andrew. I appreciate it. Thank and you, Jeff. We welcome any organization to join our podcast as a sponsor. I can be reached at info at ctcertboard.org for more information. Um, we here at the Connecticut Certification Board certainly appreciate everyone who listens. And please don't forget to follow us and catch us on Podbean, iTunes, Amazon, or your favorite podcast application. This is our final uh, podcast for the year 2021, and we will catch you all next year, everybody. 